It is a joy to be with you here at Royal York. It's a privilege to be able to take God's word and to be able to explain it. I love Peter and Gracie. I'm so thankful for your pastor and his wife and uh, so appreciated my time with Peter, not only then, but uh, over the years, we've gone to different conferences together, uh, driven places together, and always enjoy my time with him uh, and him and Gracie. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 6, John chapter 6. But a few comments before we start. In most of the world, you live one of three ways. You work, you beg, or you starve. That's it. In most of the world today, in most of the places where over 7 billion people live, you work, you beg, or you starve. There's no social security net. There's nothing to catch people if they lose a job if they're unemployed. And so if they're unemployed, they beg. And if they can't get enough money begging, they starve. And so when we think of food, we think of food so very differently in North America, in Canada, in Toronto. If you ask most of your children or grandchildren where their food come from, they would say the store. They would just assume you got it at the store. They'd never say the farm. They wouldn't talk about growing on the land. It's just not what we think about. When there's drought in the world, our prices go up a little bit. If we've had a bad harvest of wheat in Canada, prices go up and we ship it in from somewhere else. In other parts of the world, when there's drought, there is starvation. And we worked to buy stuff, not to survive. 763 million people on our planet live on $1.90 a day, according to the, uh, the recent United Nations report. Less than $1.90 a day. When they're working, they work simply to survive. So with that as our backdrop, I want you to be thinking about John 6. Word of God says this. I'm going to stutter step through the passage, the first four verses. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed, by healing the sick. When Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down, then Jesus went up and sat on a mountainside beside his disciples, and the Jewish Passover festival was near. In the Gospel of John, you have three Passovers. This is the second of three. And so John mentions three Passovers during the ministry of Jesus. What was the Passover? Pastor Peter read from some of that today. The, the Passover in the book of Exodus was the ten plagues brought upon Egypt by God to free the Israelites from the Egyptian tyranny. And as God was doing that and freeing them from the Egyptian tyranny, he brought ten plagues upon them. The tenth plague was the plague of the firstborn. And in doing so, everyone that was firstborn in any family was going to be killed by the angel, by the angel of death, unless blood was placed over their doorpost. Through the pandemic, my family moved to devotions during dinner. We used to pray and read with our kids as they went to bed at night. Uh, our oldest son is eight years older than our twins. And so because of that gap, we were doing it at bedtime, teaching our kids first, we read the Bible to you, then we read the Bible with you, then you read the Bible to us. That's kind of our, been our pattern over the years. Um, so we're doing devotions during the pandemic because we were all home um, during dinners. And that's a pattern we have maintained the last couple of years now. And so, and so we're in the Exodus. This is a couple of years ago as we were going through the Bible and we're there and my kids are talking and my son is like, so what is, 
Passover again? Like I asked, I kind of asked what it is. And my son is at that time, he's 18, he's 20 now. And um, we're talking about it and he's like, oh, the angel passed over. Passover. I'm like, yeah, he's not quick. It's fine. <laughs> and then our daughter, who was 16 at the time, said, uh, if, if after dad, you know, kind of put the blood over the doorpost, if the daughter went out because she doesn't like her older brother and had washed it off, would the angel know it was there or not? And I said, really, this is family devotions. <laughs> so the Passover was God's rescuing of his people out of Egypt. And then when they went into the desert, God provided manna. You see in verse 2 that a great crowd of people are following Jesus. It says, because they saw the signs he performed by healing the sick. And so many of the people were gathering around Jesus because they wanted a genie in a bottle. They wanted Jesus to show up and poof. Do something for me. Poof, do something. Jesus, I need this. And way too often, that's how we treat Jesus today. We only show up praying to him when we need something. In fact, think of your prayers. How often is your prayer just a shopping list for God? God, I need this. God, I need this. God, what about that? And the disappointment that ensues when God doesn't answer your prayer the way you want, we just bring him our shopping list. God is much greater than our shopping list. He's not our genie in the bottle. Verse 5. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward them, he said to Philip, where will we buy bread for all these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Verse 7. Philip answered him, it would take more than a half a year's wages to buy enough bread for everyone to just even have one bite. There's a large crowd, they're gathering, they've been listening to Jesus, and Jesus says, we should buy lunch for everyone. We should buy everybody some dinner. And Philip's like, what are you talking about? Even if we had a half a year's wages, there wouldn't be enough for people to even have one bite. Jesus wants to show them, before this miracle, the impossibility of the situation. Verse 8, another of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with small five, five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will that go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There's plenty of grass in the place where they sat. About 5,000 men were there, counted by men, so likely with women and children. We're probably talking ten to 12,000 people. There would have been less women and less children, but cumulatively, maybe ten to 12,000. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, distributed it to those who were seated as much as they wanted, he did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of five barley loaves left over by all those who had eaten. This is the only, gospel, the only miracle found in all four gospels except for the resurrection. I should say something to you. That the only two miracles found in all four Gospels are the feeding of the 5,000 and the resurrection. That means this is preeminently important. I mean, if God says something, it's important because God has said it. But when God continues to repeat it, he's got a point to make. Does that make sense? So 5,000 people are fed. This incredible miracle has happened. It's occurred as people are coming to see Jesus perform miracles and poof, do something, Jesus our genie in a lamp. Jesus wants to show them something 
and more profound than that, he feeds them with five little barley loaves. They would have been just tiny loaves of bread. They weren't like big loaves of bread. It was a boy that was carrying them and a couple little fish. They sit down. I mean, could you imagine being there? Jesus prays. He begins to break it off and it just keeps breaking. And they just keep feeding. And they have more left over than they did when they started. That's the power of God come down, isn't it? I mean, but the God who created all the wheat, who created all the fish of the sea, who spoke them into existence, this is nothing for him. Verse 14, after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew by a mountain to a mountain by himself. They see what Jesus is doing, and the first thing they want is, let's usurp the Roman rule. The tyranny of Rome should be over. We want to be free as the Jewish people, and we want to make Jesus our king. And Jesus withdraws because he knows they're going to do it by force. You see, the enemies Jesus came to defeat is so much greater than Roman rule. Jesus didn't just come to defeat the Romans. Jesus came to defeat sin and Satan and death. Enemies so much greater than Roman tyranny. You see, so often we come to Jesus and we want to make him the king of our lives, small king, small K, in some areas that we're having problems in. Like if you could do something with my principal at school, if you could do something with my dad, if you could do something with my boss, if you could do something with my neighbor, if you could do something with, you just name it. And Jesus says, I've actually come to do something much greater. I've come to deal with your sin, with Satan, and with death. I've come to deal with your heart. I've come to look after your soul. Is that not much better than dealing with just your boss or your principal? I've come to deal with your soul, is what Jesus is saying. I've, I've come to bring you from darkness to light. I've come to bring you from death to life. And so here he withdraws because he knows he's Messiah, but he doesn't want to be the earthly king. He is the king of all. Verse 16, when evening came, the disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat. They set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it's dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water. They were frightened. He said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. And you got a couple of miracles going on here. One, Jesus is walking on water toward the disciples. They're terrified. They don't know who it is. Jesus reassures them, it's me. Don't be afraid. And then as soon as he steps into the boat, it's like the boat immediately ends up where they were heading because of the power of who Jesus is. He wants to impress upon his disciples his deity, that he's God come down, that he is the Messiah, the Christ. We see this in other encounters. Jesus in water, once on a boat, as he's on the boat, the wind and the waves are breaking over the boat. The storm is fierce. The disciples think they're going to drown. They wake Jesus up. Don't you care that we drown? And he speaks out and speaks to the wind and the waves. And they calm. Why? 
Some would say because of his power, that is true. But I would also say because they recognized his voice. He was creation's creator. And they recognized his voice. Well, the next day, verse 22, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite side of the shore of the lake, they realized that the only one boat was there and that Jesus hadn't entered it with his disciples. They went away alone, but that, sorry, they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. And once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats, they went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. So they now realize Jesus isn't there. They realize that the disciples got in the boat and left. They know Jesus didn't go with them. And they go chasing after them. Like, where are they? They find out where they are and, and, and they find them. When they, when they, verse 25, when they found him on the other side, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Like, Jesus, how did this happen? How did you get to the other side of the lake? You weren't in a boat. Like, what occurred? Jesus answered, listen to this. Very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Jesus says, you're not even looking for me anymore because of the signs. You're looking for me because you want more food. Now that might sound really weird to you, that Jesus would accuse them of just wanting more food. But in most of the world, a large portion of their income is spent on food. Transportation is by foot. Shelter is simple. Right? We, have, we work with the Koran refugees at our church. And we have one of them on staff with us. And they meet on, uh, uh, on Sunday afternoons at 2. But it's a blended congregation. So our kids' ministry and their kids' ministries all together. Our youth ministry, their youth ministry. Our young adults, their young adults. A number of them will be there worshiping this morning uh, with us. Um, and and Close, who's now on staff with us, he's 49. He would say until he was 35, he grew up with no running water, no sanitation, no electricity at all. 23 years in a refugee camp where an NGO, a non-government organization, would drop off a bag of rice once a month to feed him and his family. You just had to ration it out. That's all the food they got, except whatever they could grow on the land. Now that's an extreme situation, but in most of the world, people spend a large portion of their daily income on food. Because he lived in bamboo huts, they were pretty easy to make, right? He would create these bamboo huts for his family, create these shelters, they were free in essence. Transportation was free. So what you spent your money on was their food. In fact, it would be said in Jesus' day that people might spend 85% of their daily income on food. Well, yesterday they didn't have to spend their money on food. So now they got 85% of their money left over from yesterday. And they'd like a little bit more today because maybe there's something they'd like to buy that they could never afford because they're always buying food so they can survive. So Jesus says, you're not coming after me just because I performed a miracle or because of the signs, you're coming after me because I fed you and you want more. So that you can have more money in your pocket. And then he says in verse 27, so don't work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. That is what the Son of Man can give you. For on him God the Father has placed his approval. 
He's saying, you're misconstruing what I've come to do. I, I just didn't come to feed your stomach. I've come to feed your stomach so I can point you to real food. Food that leads to eternal life. And all too often in our lives, what we're after from Jesus is something way down here. Jesus, I got this bill to pay. I'm not saying he's not concerned about your bill. Jesus, I have whatever this is. I have this situation. I have this girl I like. I have this guy that I think I'm interested in. I have this, you name it. Whatever it is in your life. Right? I've got this colleague at work I need to get along with. And Jesus is like, I've come to deal with so much more. I've come to give you life and life eternal. I've come to nourish you so that you'll be satisfied. I've come so that you won't be always wanting over here or over there thinking, I need to chase success. I need to chase finances. I need to chase popularity. I need to see how many likes I have on social media. Jesus, I, I want to satisfy you in a way that nothing else can ever satisfy you. And he says, I want you to know that the Father has placed a seal of approval on me. Well, so then they ask him, what, what must we do to do the work that God requires? And Jesus says, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Well, that's an odd answer, isn't it? They said, what must we do? What work must we do? Tell us what to do, and we'll do it. And Jesus says, your work is simply this, believe. What? Believe isn't work. Belief is a step of faith. It's a gift from God. Belief, this is one of the three themes in John. You find three themes in John. All of the I am's are found in John. They're not found anywhere else in Scripture. They're all found in John. Light and darkness. You see this from the very beginning. He's the light that's come into the world. Nicodemus meets him at night. Right? You see this night-darkness theme all through the world. When he raises Lazarus to life again, right? Night is coming, Jesus says. You see this light-darkness theme. And the last one is believe. Believe. John, well, John 1 talks about belief. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. John eleven twenty five. 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? In John 20, John tells us why he wrote the gospel. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these miracles are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. Jesus says, the work of God is this, to believe in me. What is believing in Jesus? It's turning from whatever you've trusted in, turning from whatever you've hoped in, turning from whatever you thought would give you life, turning from whatever you thought was satisfying, and turning to Jesus. That's belief. It's renouncing the things you thought would be hope-filled and turning to Jesus. And we live a day where all around us, people are telling us what will fill their hopes and dreams. Commercials rampant with purchase me, buy me, own me, materialism. Because only if you have this will you really be satisfied. Our culture telling us that monogamy is no longer a way of living. That if you're not living polyamorously, that you're not truly going to be fulfilled in life. And so they're telling us all the time what that looks like. 
how that looks. I mean, I did a wedding recently where someone brought a wedding license. And I have never seen this. It's new. But there's now room on the wedding license for four parents on either side of bride and groom. Because we now live in a day where the Ontario government passed just a few years ago, a couple of years ago, that four different people can adopt a child together and they don't need to be related, those four people. You know, yeah, most of us don't know this stuff is happening. And you can look it up. Four different people can adopt a child together and equally raise that child as their child. And so now there's a spot for four parents on wedding licenses for the day that comes when those kids are getting married and they've been adopted by four different people who aren't married to each other, aren't even related. That's our culture today because they're trying to find anything that will satisfy them because they know there's this gap, this hole in their heart where they can't find that which satisfies. So is it popularity? Is it money? Is it success? Is it you name it? Jesus says, it's me. Believe in me. I am the one who satisfies. So they asked him, verse 30, what sign will you give that we may believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors, you know, they ate manna. They're back to the bread in the wilderness. As it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Like, they're like, hey, Jesus, do you have a sign? The day before, he fed 5,000 men plus women and children. So let's say 10,000 people with five barley loaves and two fish. And they're saying, is there something you could do to prove this is real? What? But isn't that what we do all the time to Jesus? He's answered so many of our prayers, hasn't he? Is he not a good God? And then we come to him with whatever this other thing is. He doesn't answer it the way we want. And we feel like we're having a crisis of faith. But he's answered over and over and over and over and over again, faithfully walking with us. And then we hit this area here. And maybe it's a harder area. Maybe it's more challenging. Maybe it's cancer. Maybe it's heart attack. Maybe it's health. Maybe it's bankruptcy. I don't know what it is. And all of a sudden we're like, oh, where is he? He's left me. No, he's been faithful all the way through. And just because he's not answering something the way you want him to answer doesn't mean he's not there. It means he's God and you're not. And he knows what's best because of that. So Jesus, do you have a sign? Jesus, what's the sign? Like, could you imagine that moment? Like, Jesus, like, really? A sign? Like, I fed 5,000 people, like 10,000 people, five little barley loaves and two fish. And then they say, it's awesome. They say, you know that manna stuff? That happened before. They're back to bread. Can you save us some money on what we need to buy, which is food? Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. He said, you guys have this all backwards. You act as if Moses was the great one. It is my father who gave you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He says, you want to know what the bread of the Father is? The bread of the Father is the one who will come down and give life to this world. Leslie Newbigin says this, the deeds of Jesus, such are the one they have witnessed, such as the one they have witnessed, are both mighty works and signs. They are effective actions which liberate people from disease, hunger, and death, and they are signs which point beyond 
these immediate effects to the kingly rule of God present in Jesus. The crowd has enjoyed the effect and has failed to see the sign. And the effect, like all effects, is transient. The hungry man is fed, but he hungers again. The sick man is healed, but he dies. The victim of oppression is delivered, but may become a slave to other principalities and powers. These visible acts of liberation are not to be made the prime object of desire uh, and labor. They are signs pointing to a gift that is never exhausted, a satisfaction that never passes, that is Jesus. Jesus, the one who satisfies. So they're talking about manna, verse 34. Sir, they said, give us this bread. Do what you did yesterday again. And this is where Jesus declares, I am the bread of life. Maybe you've never seen that before. The context of Jesus declaring he is the bread of life is found in the feeding of the 5,000 with a whole group of people that just wanted more food. They wanted more bread. Jesus declaring that he is the one who nourishes and at the end declaring he himself is bread, the one that satisfies. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. He is the all-satisfying one. But our world tells us it's not true and it's easy for us to be sunk or, 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 or pulled by the world. Listen to this, Demi Lovato. Laying on the bathroom floor feeling nothing. I'm overwhelmed and I'm insecure. Give me something. Something I could take to ease my mind slowly. Just a drink and you'll feel better. Take her home and you'll feel better. Sorry, this is Sean Mendez. Uh, keep telling me that it gets better. Does it ever? That's Sean Mendez. This is Demi Lovato. A hundred million stories and a hundred million songs. I feel stupid when I sing. Nobody's listening to me. Nobody's listening to me. I talk to shooting stars, but they always get it wrong. I feel stupid when I pray. So why am I praying anyway? Nobody's listening. Please, please send me anyone. Lord, is there anyone? I need someone. I mean, Sean Mendez and Demi Lovato, two of the wealthiest people on the planet, popular, who at times talk about the emptiness of their lives. Because the only one that can satisfy is Jesus Christ. We live in a day where trying to explain to the world that Jesus is the bread of life to many seems impossible, but it's not. You needed him, is that not true? He is the all-satisfying one. Is that not good news? I can come to him any moment, any time, any day. Jesus, it's my heart. Jesus, it's my soul. Jesus, it's the darkness. Jesus, the sin that I feel. Jesus, the temptation. And he is always the bread of life, the one that satisfies to a greater degree. But our culture wants to tell our young people that it's not true. The previous generation was told that they should be true to themselves. That's Peter and Gracie and that generation. The young generation, some of you are part of, you're being told you can create yourselves. You can't create yourself. God has created you. And you live in a culture where you're told that if people don't listen to you or don't do what you like, you can cancel them. But here becomes the greatest fear of young people today. The greatest fear of young people today is twofold. One is this. They no longer experience the guilt that we talk about. I believe out of Romans 7, it's clear that guilt comes from the law. Understanding law, Paul said, I wouldn't know what guilt was. I wouldn't know I had transgressed the law had I not known the law. 
And it made that guilt reality in my life. And so I talk to all kinds of young people who say, I don't experience guilt. But here's where they do guilt for transgression, guilt for their sin. Here's where they experience guilt. Is when they have tried to create something, they haven't been true to whatever they've created. They think they're going to be the greatest environmental person on the planet. They do something outside of that and everybody online cancels them. So then they feel guilt over that. And more so than just guilt, they fear being canceled, everyone canceling them out. And they hear all these things about diversity, about body image, about belonging. But Jesus is the bread of life. He's saving people from every language, custom, culture, and tribe. There's nothing more diverse than his kingdom. There never will be. Is that not good news? What do you need anywhere on the planet, anywhere today, to come to Christ? The Spirit of God moves in you and you believe. Is that not good news? That's it. To believe the works of the one who sent him. To believe in him. To turn from whatever it is you're trusting and turn in him. There will be no larger group that is more diverse than you will ever see in glory. God is saving people all around our world. Everywhere. And he has a kingdom that is diverse. When they talk about diversity, they don't even know what they're talking about. Then they talk about body image. And people are just overcome by it, overwhelmed by it. The images they see on Instagram, the things that they do on Snapchat, the, then looking in the mirror and being like, I want, right? And I'm lacking because they want to be bigger or better or whatever it would be, more muscular. Man, I, I was at the gym the other day. I've been working out to try to actually lose some weight and <laughs> shift some things around. <laughs> And uh, not because of my body image, because of my health. I have sciatica. My doctor's like, you should have abs. That will help. I'm like, I have never. I have never had abs, but if it will help. And I said, my wife doesn't want me to have abs. And Amy said, uh, it'd be okay. Um, so, yeah, what I didn't expect, eh? And so I'm at the gym the other day, and I'm, I'm, benching, I'm benching about 200 pounds. And, and I'm like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the weights off. And there's a, two guys standing there. And the, the one looks like he could be Thor. And uh, he says, don't worry, as guardian. No, he didn't say that. Earthling. He's like, uh, you don't have to take those weights. Because, you know, you take the weights off. He's like, don't take those off. He said, I'm, well, it started like this. He said, sir, whenever you're in the gym and someone says, sir, you now feel old. And then, and then he's like, you don't need to take those weights off. I'm just going to add weights to it. And his buddy's standing and said, oh, you just made him feel bad. And he's like, oh, no, I don't want to make you feel bad. You know, for, for an older guy, you work out pretty hard. And his buddy said, that didn't help. That didn't help at all. Right? And so, and so here's the great news. I one day get resurrected body. Is that not good news? I won't have sciatica. I'm not saying I'll look like Thor. Right? But I will one day have resurrected body where there'll be no cancer, there'll be no pain, there'll be no disease. Well, you'll look in the mirror and be fully satisfied because it will be exactly in perfection, in resurrected form, who God has made you to be without the sinful nature. Is that not great? They, 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 they talk about wanting forgiveness because if they're being canceled, they don't know what to do. There is a God who, when you belong to him, is a God who graciously forgives. Is that not good news? 
Do you know you will never go to God and ask him for forgiveness and hear him say no? Is that not hope-filled? He is the bread of life. He is the all-satisfying one. He's creating a kingdom that is diverse, granting you a resurrected body, giving you forgiveness because of what he went through. Christ went through hell on the cross, so I never need to go through it. Is that not good news? The wrath of the Father poured out on him so that he could be bread of life to us. And as he was having the wrath of the Father poured out on him, he finally cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As the communion that the Father and the Son and the Spirit had always enjoyed was interrupted in a moment, for a moment. As the Son became our sin so that we would never need to be punished for our sin. We can experience forgiveness. We have someone to go to with our guilt. Is that not great news? And he never pushes us away and he never pushes us aside because he is the bread of life. And lastly, he adopts us into our fam his family. We are children of God. We are heirs of God. We are co-heirs with Christ. I mean, people all the time now today are worried about being canceled. And it's a horrible, horrible, horrible weight to live under. God will never cancel you. He canceled his son on the cross so that anyone who believed anywhere, anytime, would not be canceled but would be welcomed in. When the father sees you, he sees his son. And he sees that his blood, the blood of his son, has covered you completely, so completely, that he'll never cancel you. He'll never cast you out. Instead, he's welcomed you in as his child forever. What a great God. And he is the bread of life. He is the bread of life for you today. Is that not good news? The all-satisfying one that when sin it comes, it tempts, it knocks at our door. Jesus, remind me that you're the all-satisfying one. When opportunity arises to make more money, and there's nothing wrong with making more money, but when it's at the expense of your Christian witness, at the expense of your Christian walk, no, Jesus, you are the all-satisfying one. When the opportunity is there for whatever it would be that tempts you, Jesus, you are the all-satisfying one. Remind me of that in my life today. Lord Jesus, I need you. He is the bread of life who grants his life to any who believes. And one great day he will return. Is that not good news? The clouds will part, the trump will sound, he will descend. And we will be welcomed into a place where we will enjoy him as its centerpiece forever and ever. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we are so thankful that you are the bread of life. And so often, God, I confess that I look for you to do something so much less. Would you fix this little problem over here? When, God, you've come in the person of Christ, Lord Jesus, you've shown up. And you fixed our problems with sin and Satan and death. Granted us relationship with the Father by way of the Spirit. And Jesus, your accomplished work. May you show us that you are the all-satisfying one. May we continue to turn to you when the world or the enemy or our sinful nature, nation, uh, nature tempts us. May we continue to turn to you when everything around us says that we should deny you. 
May we deny that around us, deny ourselves, take up our cross to follow you, because we recognize that you are the bread of life. And Lord Jesus, we hear about just the horrors of our world. Oh, we long for you to come. But until that day, may the reality of your work in our lives by your Spirit remind us each day what it means that you are the bread that nourishes and satisfies our very soul and being. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.